Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. I'm so excited today to have Amy Stewart and Rosalie Neck with us. Uh, I'm, I'm here from deep in the bowels of Skylight Books. Um, we're trying to keep it safe and wear masks while we're in the store, which is why I've come into the bowels so I can demask for this conversation. Um, it's a thrill to have y'all, um, even though we're digitally gathered, to sort of like cosmically, spiritually bring ourselves together around this book uh, and around writing and, and talk about writing. Um, so I won't, I won't do much further ado. I'll just dive in uh, with a welcome and an introduction. Um, we're here today to uh, talk about Rosalie's new book, Vera Kelly is Not a Mystery. Um, when ex-CIA agent Vera Kelly loses her job and her girlfriend in a single day, she reluctantly goes into business as a private detective. Heartbroken and cash-strapped, she takes a case that dredges up dark memories and attracts dangerous characters from across the Cold War landscape. Before it's over, she'll choose a lost chase chase a lost child through foster care and follow a trail of Dominican exiles to the Caribbean. Forever looking over her shoulder, she nearly misses what's right in front of her, her own desire for home connection and a new romance at the local bar. In the second installment of the Vera Kelly series, Rosalie Necht challenges and deepens the Vera we love, a woman of sparkling wit, deep moral fiber, and martini dry humor who knows how to follow a case even as she struggles to follow her heart. Um, them called it snappy, gritty, engaging, and Booklist calls the writing evocative and spare, stylish and brooding. Uh, I'm super excited to hear some of the book. We'll get to hear uh, Rosalie read for a little bit, and then I'll let Amy and Rosalie talk, and then we'll take questions from you. Um, you can see on the right side of your screen that there's a place where you can make comments or add to the chat. Um, and then if you would like to ask a question, um, you can click on ask a question at the bottom uh, and type it there and you can look at other people's questions, upvote them and um, we'll have a chance to get those asked at the end. So our guest today is very exciting. Um, we have Amy Stewart who's kind enough to join us to talk about this book. Um, Amy Stewart is the New York Times bestselling author of the Cop Sisters series, which are based on the true story of one, America, one of America's first female deputy sheriffs and her two rambunctious sisters. Um, she's also the author of popular nonfiction titles, including The Drunken Botanist, Wicked Plants and Flower Confidential. She's joining us from Portland. Um, and Rosalie Necht is the author of Who is Very Kelly, which is the first book in the series, as well as Relief Map. She's the translator of Cesar Aira's The Seamstress in the Wind from New Directions and is a Center for Fiction Emerging Writer Fellow. She lives in New York City. We're so glad to have you here. Let's have a warm, sort of like invisibly audible to make <laughs> metaphors applause across the wave. Uh, and looking forward to hearing from the book. Thanks y'all for being here. Thank you. 
Um, and thank you all for being here. It's been, you know, a piece of bringing out a new book that is uh, really wonderful. It's just getting to see people that I haven't seen in a while. Um, and I, I do not actually see you, but I know that you're here. <laughs> and it still feels good. Um, feels really good. And I want to thank Amy again for being here too. Amy has been um, just like super supportive. Amy is just a, a generous person kind of in the literary community and it's always happy to, to kind of lend her clout to things, um, <laughs> lend her success to things. So um, just thank you again for taking the time. Uh, and thank you to Skylight Books, which I believe it was your establishment that I saw uh, going viral on Twitter a week or two ago because like one of the Chris's was seen leaving Skylight with like a bag full of books. Chris Hemsworth, one of those, um, one of the major Chris's. So it's almost like I'm there, which is, means it's almost like I'm seeing a celebrity right now. Um, so yes, I'm gonna just read uh, Chris Pine. Okay, thank you, Molly Temple. Yes, yes, one of the top Chris's in my opinion of the, the tier of Chris's. Um, so uh, I'm gonna go ahead and read um, just the first few pages uh, of the book here. Um, and thanks for the introduction to Agnes. Um, chapter one. <clears throat> the morning after Jane left me, I woke in a Russian diner that overlooked the boardwalk at Brighton Beach, sitting upright in the corner of a booth. I had always been grateful for an all-night restaurant. A waitress with red cheeks was refilling the cup of coffee in front of me and rotating the plate with its scraps of corned beef, clearing her throat politely. I sat up and thanked her. Through the fogged glass, I could see the gray ocean, pale and soft, meeting a paler sky. Down the beach, the wonder wheel at Coney Island was coming out of the pre-dawn dark. I put my hand over the mug and the waitress moved away. By my watch, it was 6.40 in the morning, which meant that it was almost 24 hours now since things had begun to go wrong. Jane had said, I'm tired of waiting for you to want me here. She was standing in the hallway between my bedroom and the second floor bathroom, holding the powder pink bag with her makeup and toothbrush in it, wearing my dressing gown. I don't have to move in but you hardly talked to me. I talked to you, I said. About what, she said, about nothing. I turn around and you've left the room. I talked to you. You say clever things, she said, and when I try to answer you seriously, you make clever jokes. You can move in then, I said, becoming desperate. You can move in. I've been stupid. You know I can't, you would make me miserable. She waved her hand toward the hall, the stairs. You practically faint when I leave my shoes on the rug. She brushed past me to my room. I leaned in the doorway and watched her getting dressed. My eyes were stinging, my nose was stinging. I sneezed. I have a class to teach, she said. I'll get the rest of my things later. Don't go, I said. I set it into my cupped hand. She put her hand on my shoulder. You're a nice girl, Vera, she said, but you're impossible. Jane was noisy and hot with a bright voice, a bright face. After she left, the house felt like a meat locker despite the August weather. I went for a long blurry walk. When I got home, I stood in the kitchen for 15 minutes looking at the wall clock, and then I had a whiskey and sat in the garden. The roses were blooming for the second time that year. They were yellow washed with pink, like sherbet melting in a bowl of punch. The starling who lived under the eaves of the shed came out to scream at me. He thought the yard was his. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. It was time to go to work. It was one of the film editors for the news broadcast. At, I was. <laughs> I should explain that I 
got headphones on, which I normally don't when I'm doing this, so I kind of can't hear myself. Uh, and so I am stumbling over my own text here. Uh, I apologize. Um, I was one of the film editors for the news broadcast at the WKNY station near the Battery. I started leaking tears on the Q train over the river because the view was too big and I could see the trees on Governor's Island fizzing and dark in the sun. The summer would be over soon. I made it to my break before I called her. She had a telephone in her office at Brooklyn College and she would have just finished her afternoon romantic poetry class. It rang twice and she picked up. Jane, I said, I think this is a mistake. I'll make it up to you. Vera, it's too late, all right? I'm sorry. What do you mean? I was alone in the editing room and I was keeping my voice low. George Kepler must have been listening from the switchboard or patched in from another office. Later, I wondered if he had been listening to my calls for months, ever since he had cornered me at the bar where the editors and runners went after the evening broadcast and I had pushed him off laughing. What do you mean it's too late? I said, is there someone else? She said nothing. Christ, Jane, is there? There is? I didn't plan it this way, she said. I hung up and tried not to fall apart. My eyes were rattling in my head. I went to the stairwell and smoked a cigarette and then another. I returned to the editing room. My supervisor, Mr. Anderson, was there, standing with George Kepler, who looked very pleased. Vera, I need to speak with you, Mr. Anderson said, and turned to indicate his office with a sweep of his hand, as if, as if we were going to the theater together. What for, I said. George Kepler turned and walked away. The hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. Privately, he said. He shut the door behind us and pointed to a chair. His windows looked out on a post office lot with a huge doorway to an underground garage where fleets of mail trucks came and went in the gloom. Sunlight never touched the street in this part of town. There's a character clause in your employment contract, he said. He looked at me as if I should grasp his meaning. And then I did. A mask descended. I tried to keep my voice calm. Can you make yourself clear, I said. I have a lot of work to do. No, you don't, he said. You're in violation of your employment contract. We can't keep people on staff who live that way. He pushed back from his desk and began searching in his coat pocket for his matches. His color was rising and he wouldn't look at me. I told them you would be a problem, he said, when they first promoted you from the floor. It was obvious to anyone with eyes. They didn't listen to me. He found the matches. We'll mail you your paycheck. You'll take his word, I said. George Kepler is the worst editor you have. He takes twice as long as the rest of us. You're wasting my time, he said. There were two more editors at their desks when I came back to get my things. George was standing at the side of the room watching one of the monitors, but he looked over and I stared until he turned away. I packed everything into my purse and a shopping bag I found in the lounge. I had never kept much at my desk anyway. There was a tense silence while I sifted through my papers. The youngest editor, a sweet boy named Carl, was concerned. Going somewhere, he said. Nice to know you, Carl, I said. It had been. He looked surprised. And then I was back out on the street again. The awful thing was that it was a beautiful day, one of those slow, rich August afternoons when the light hit the battery like the inside of a cathedral. I walked slowly, having nowhere I wanted to be now or for the foreseeable future. A man at a hot dog cart was having an argument with a seagull, which was hopping away with half a pretzel. Two children were racing each other to the railing overlooking the water. The leaves in a stand of little birches were all alight and shivering. I had a pain in my chest as if I had swallowed too much air. 
I walked as far as the Staten Island Ferry Terminal and sat on a bench for a long time, doing nothing at all and not seeing much, until it occurred to me that I could smoke. I smoked three or four cigarettes. The six o'clock ferry was leaving, and I got on and went to Staten Island and back just to feel the sea wind in my hair. I stood at the railing with a crowd of happy visitors taking pictures of the Statue of Liberty and tried to think what to do with myself. Um, I'll stop there. This is where all the applause happens. Yes. <laughs> They're throwing roses. Yes. Water, like they always do. Um, yeah, so that's the first few um, we're just dealing with some other potential feedback issues. Just one second. Okay. Okay. I think we're good now. <laughs> All right. Good. My husband is like logged in and watching from his laptop at the oh. table. So he moved into a different area of the apartment. So. Good. good. Yeah. Yeah. Th these are the things we have to, we have to work out in this new life of ours, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So, um, well, two things. So first of all, um, one of my favorite people is here at your event tonight, which is um, Vicki Nesting is a retired librarian from the New Orleans area. And, um, and she's been a, um, a big champion of my work for a lot of years. And so one time when I was in New Orleans, I went and did an event at her library. And I just wanna say a huge shout out to librarians everywhere who, yes. like all of us are coping with, um, just so many challenges with their jobs and so many questions about reopening and stuff. And they're just, they're just such an important part of the book community. So yay librarians. Yay librarians. Yay, librarians. Um, do you know what occurred to me as I was listening to that first chapter? I hadn't thought about this before, but I started a novel with a young woman who loses her job and her boyfriend and her house all in one scene. I think it's a fine way to kick off a book, really. <laughs> it is, it's like a country song. You just lay out the stakes immediately, right up front. It's no. like a country song. It's also the opening scene of Stripes. Noted. Yes. It's been a long, long time since I saw Stripes, but I will take your word for it. Me too, but when I was a kid, it was on cable constantly, and I had no parental supervision as a child of the 70s. <laughs> I had that movie memorized, and when I realized I was basically just writing the opening scene to Stripes, I went back and watched the movie. Um, and it's amazing uh, how many great lines there are, but in, in other ways, it's also, you realize very quickly why it's not Bill Murray's most famous film. I, have, I definitely have seen it though, and I remember being charmed. You know, so, um, I hope that I hope a lot of you have read both of the books, but what I'm wondering about is like after the first one, what was it like to get back into her world? Because this is an experience you haven't had before as a novelist of returning to the characters in the world you'd said goodbye to. How did that feel? Right. I sort of I really hesitated. I kind of had this push-pull thing about doing a series because it hadn't because the truth is that writing the first one was hard. Writing the first one took five years and it was, there was a lot of rewriting, you know, it was one of those projects where at the end of it, like the material that you've taken out, the pages that you've taken out and thrown away, like adds up to almost another book. Yes. Um, so when it was done, I was like, okay, you know, I feel good about this. I feel good about what this has ended up being, but like, like that was 
like I think I may have actually used the phrase pulling teeth like in a conversation with my editor about it. So, but then, you know, of course, it had, what had appealed to me was sort of the pulpy nature of noir fiction and sort of, I think I have always enjoyed reading series. And I also sort of feel like we're in an era of the series because TV is kind of the dominant yes. thing. And, and I think people, um, you know, I think are just like really used to kind of relating to something that is presented to them that way in installments. Mm -hmm. and I love all that stuff. So anyway, it felt logical in that way, but I was apprehensive going back to it because I thought it might be sort of this uh, sort of super arduous process again, but it was not, it really wasn't. And I, um, I feel like that was what I learned there, which is like, I think other people who write series have known all along is that a whole lot of the time, like that kind of process of writing it and then throwing out half of it and going back to the beginning and then like reconceptualizing it and like, maybe it should all be in the third person and maybe it all needs to be in the present and all that stuff um, is like how you figure out your character and your world. And that once you have done that, you don't generally need to do it a second time. Uh -huh. <laughs> so on, when I returned to it, it was like just all of the fun stuff. It was like I had already I'd already done all the the really sticky, like complicated, trying to sort of made all those decisions. And so I could get back to it and just, like I just knew who she was and I had a, a much easier time figuring out which, what she would do in a given situation than I had the first time. So it was really super fun, actually. Yeah. And it's cool that the two books are so different. So um, probably a lot of people who are here have already read them, but, um, the first one's a spy novel. She's not a private detective in the first book. She's a private detective in the second book. So that right. changes everything in terms of the structure um, and just the, you know, it's kind of the pacing and the, and the shape of the whole thing. So you did get to like come at her in a very different way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was fun. And it was sort of necessary because the kind of the arc that she goes through in the first book like no spoilers or anything, but there is a disenchantment process with, <laughs> with being in the CIA that happens in the first book. So I knew that bringing her back, I couldn't have her sort of just going back to her handler and being like, you know, like, let's let bygones be bygones, you know? So yeah. um, she kind of had to do something else. And I think also I kind of connected with the idea that, that what she would really want or like the way that she would really feel kind of in control of her life is if she's in business for herself, mm -hmm. you know? Which I think is, a, is an impulse that a lot of writers can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, and I just think it's super handy for a private detective to be kind of a, a lone wolf. Like it sort of, it fits in a way because she has to do all this really hard stuff and she's going to put herself at risk and she goes and she does some stuff that's undercover and she leaves the country. And, um, and so for her to just be out there on her own with no one else she has to answer to, and in fact, no relationship either, Right. It simplifies things, right? It makes yeah. it more she's she's in her own head and, 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 and you're just following her. Yeah. And I think that's always kind of been the function of the PI um, and why yeah. that character has appealed to people. Obviously, there's all kinds of different sort of like like police and police adjacent and spy and spy adjacent sort of, you know, those are all genres and subgenres. Uh, but I think people who choose the PI have generally like. Raymond Chandler, who I kind of always go back to, you know, he what appealed to him was the idea that the PI is the person who like cannot manage being within an institutional structure, yeah. like both because he doesn't like to be told what to do, but also because he's too much of a mess, right? Like yeah. his PIs are always just like shattered human beings um, right. who are barely functioning, you know? 
uh, but that's the appeal, right? Is that it's like someone who who gets to investigate and gets to sort of work towards the idea of like justice in this roundabout way, but without having to be a part of any of these institutions that we know don't really deliver those things uh, yeah. with any kind of consistency, you know? Right. They don't have to follow rules. Uh, yeah. And 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 they tend to have different motivations, you know. Like one thing about if you have a character who's a cop, the why, like why is this person chasing after this case so much? Well, the why is like it's your job. You show up right. in the morning and it's your job to go do that. So with that kind of taken out of the equation, that the the motivation can be more personal, which I think is is so interesting. Totally. Um, I think that was actually why I had her get fired and dumped at the beginning, right? It was like, in both books, you have to put a person in a situation where when given an array of ways to move forward, or maybe not really given many ways to move forward, they might plausibly pick something that's kind of extreme and like a bit of a long shot, you know? Like you don't, you don't go into private detecting if your life is going really well, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I He's, he's up against it. Right. And, yeah. And that's what yeah. makes it so interesting. And and I think and it's it's like so weirdly satisfying to read right now, you know. I mean, the world's in a lot of chaos and you, you would think that what we'd want to read is the is like just the the literary equivalent of a of a cup of hot chocolate. But <laughs> in fact, like reading these books and and this woman who is in another era, she's in the sixties and is in all kinds of trouble with international intrigue and, and everything. It's like, it's it's weirdly comforting. It's like, it's so nice to read about someone else's problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And I and I do love that both of them have this connection with Latin America. And so I'm, I'm or, well, in this case, it's, it's Dominican Republic, but, but um, how did you choose those settings and what's your connection to those places? Or do you have a connection to those places? Well, yeah, I, I lived in Argentina for a while. I had a, um, I was teaching English in, uh, in Santa Fe, Argentina, um, which is a small city, kind of in the, uh, a part of the country that's like big sky, very flat, a lot of corn, like a sort of wow. very felt in many ways, like the, like the Midwest United States, um, in a lot of ways. So I was, I was living there and teaching English um for a, a year uh quite a while ago now uh in 2007 um so uh it just made sense i kind of had some processing to do about argentina <laughs> and i had you know i had been there so i had a little bit of familiarity with it although of course the thing about writing a period piece is that it is always a place that you have not been to or it generally is you know because right. it, because the past is a foreign country i mean <laughs> yeah um uh but yeah, I sort of, you know, like I loved Argentina and I um, knew a little bit about its history from from classes they had taken and things like that. So it just felt like a, a place that I wanted to revisit. And then um, I think similarly, I mean, basically, like I, I studied Spanish in college um, and I, you know, went to Argentina and came back and stuff. And I, I can speak Spanish. And so it sort of just puts you in like a career track where like you just sort of keep like you just it's sort of I'm just more. It's just more on my mind. Like <laughs> Spanish-speaking countries just tend to be like kind of more um, on my mind or like present in my life um, than they would be if I hadn't done that. And I was working for a couple of years at the time that I was writing this book. I was working for a, a Puerto Rican community-based organization in, in New York, um, 
And I just like that community included a ton of Dominicans. And so like talking to Dominicans about like their memories of the island and yeah. sort of having a sense of, there's just such a strong connection between New York and the Dominican Republic. I mean, there's this, similarly with Puerto Rico and New York, it's like, there are a lot of people who live in both places really, you know, and travel back and forth so often or like kids who are like New Yorkers, but they grew up spending their summers in the Dominican Republic. Um, they're just like, you know, we have this idea that there's like, the the spanish speaking western hemisphere and then there's the anglophone western hemisphere and that they're separate but like this is also the spanish speaking western hemisphere you know like <laughs> it's blended like it's all here so yeah. um so yeah so i was interested you know in the dominican republic too and in um the 1965 invasion of dr by the united states which mm -hmm. isn't depicted in the book it, it happens before the action of this book but i that was sort of a peg that i was interested in that. And it seemed like an event that would have this kind of uh, intrigue, right? And also like pain and loss and dislocation kind of swirling around it. Right, yeah. Well, I love all the settings. I mean, you know, New York, of course, really comes to life. And, um, but but in the first book, when we're in Argentina and in and, and the second book, when we're in the Dominican Republic, they're just, they're, they're great places to be. And there's just something about the 60s um, with these, I, I really love it that that's the time period. I feel like it's, I was born in 69. So I feel like it's this time period that um, still kind of feels like the present, but it almost mm. qualifies as historical fiction at this point, which scares right. me. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's far enough away that you really have to stop and think about like, well, wait, did we have this at that time? Or did, you know, you're sort of thinking a little bit maybe about the technology exactly. And, and Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which That's actually, cool. I already have been informed that I got something key wrong oh. on that front. Uh -oh. uh, and this happened with my first book too. I had a couple of people reach out to me to let me know that I'd gotten details like that wrong. And they were uniformly so nice about it. It was like, I ended up feeling like so like, yeah, and you took time out of your day to like, let me know that like, just so that I know for next time, like they did not have color television in Buenos Aires in 1966. Like, that's like, there's something really beautiful about that. Like I was like, I'm so glad I know that now and I'm sorry that it's too late to fix this problem. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it is an era I think that feels so close in some ways uh, that it's easy to not realize that things that you assume were there were not in fact there. Right. And the little detail is that apparently I several times described someone as putting their car into fifth gear. Oh. No, they didn't wow. have five gears. They only had know. four. I would not have known that either. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, anyway, little things like that. It wouldn't have occurred to me to ask because it feels like that era feels so, like it's just right over there. Right. You know, it feels like it's like right over the horizon, right over there. Yeah, right, feels very recent. I remember hearing David Sedaris talk about um, a short story he wrote um, that it involved a, a shrub that produced berries in the spring. And he got letters from people saying, it wouldn't be the spring, like the berries that should be in the fall. And he was like, it's a story about talking animals. If I want to have berries in the spring, it's gonna have them. So, you know, there's the problem, you can only do so much research and then you just, it is a novel after all, you know. You yeah, you can always play that card. Yeah. It's fiction, come on. <laughs> but there is a funny process there. There is like a sort of, you know, I think for people who haven't been through it, people would be surprised to learn how much of the copy editing phase 
is actually essentially fact-checking. Like you mm -hmm. get your work of fiction fact-checked, which makes sense because I mean, works of fiction are full of facts and the lines between them are, are blurry. And of course they also do things like, they let you know that like, no, like in the third week of the story, like you said, it was Saturday. I counted, it would be Thursday by now, all that stuff. That's um, crazy. Timelines make me insane. Yes, well, I learned I learned my lesson, I thought, and I like carefully tracked my timeline in a Word document this time, but I still made a hash of it, but. I actually, um, I can almost reach it. I actually have a 1919 calendar printed out. Next. So I can just look. Was that a yeah. What was it? Yeah. You are so much better off just making sure you check at the beginning and then going back and trying to fix it later. Things oh. like that are, can create unbelievable problems. But yeah, seasonal stuff or like you read. And of course, by the time you get to copy editing also, you have become deranged. Like you have read your own book so many times by that yeah. time. Like you hate the sight of it. You hate yourself. You hate the entire venture of book publishing. You know, you don't ever want to think about it again. And then at the very end, this like, beleaguered copy editor who's just trying to keep you from looking like an idiot yeah. is making notes in your margin that's like wouldn't it be colder in this scene and you're like leave me alone like, get um, off my back I know. It be, it's as cold as i say it was <laughs> yeah right um, yeah i know i know it, it starts to just look like a pile of paragraphs after a while it just starts to be yeah. incoherent and actually your editor Maisie, told me one time that there does come this point where I think a, a road that authors can go down, which is a big mistake, is just to start changing things for the sake of changing them. Like, mm. just I just want to see something different. I've read this scene so many right. times, it could be fine. But it's like you come back to it for the hundredth time, and it's like, no, now I need to change this. And, and, and you can sort of ruin it by just rearranging things to keep yourself from going insane. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I feel like I've had that moment with like, the 11th hour like should i change this entire thing into third person moment and i sort of like wrestled myself back from the brink you know what i mean and this is what a writing group is good for i was like guys like this is this is crazy talk right and they were like please don't do that right now um but i i can definitely see how it happens yeah yeah for sure well i'm glad i'm glad you kept it in the first person because you know her voice is what it's all about you totally just want to be inside her head Thank you. Yeah, I, I, um, I actually, when I started the first book, it was a little bit an experiment for myself of like, I'm going to try to write something in first person because I really hadn't up to that point. Um, I had always done kind of a close third, like most people do. Um, so that was that was sort of self consciously like, okay, I'm like, I'm gonna do it, you know, <laughs> right. give it a shot. Right. Yeah. And you're well until I, I mean, I don't know. Are you working from home right now? Or are you off work? Like, what's your balancing yeah. job with writing situation right now? Um, I'm so I started a private practice like in February 2020, which is like a really interesting time to launch a new venture, as it turns out. Um, yes. uh, I'm a social worker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, but so I've been sort of, I, I am working from home. I have a few clients who I, who I see through, you know, video platforms like this, HIPAA compliant video platforms. Mm -hmm. So yes. not exactly like this. Um, right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm working, but of course there's a limit to how much, how many hours I can work because I also have a toddler yeah. um, and my husband works full time and he's also a therapist. So it's like our days are this like 
kind of crazy like uh, like celebrity squares like patchwork of like I have an appointment at one two and three so like you can see someone at four and then right. like I can see someone at five convene for dinner bathe the baby go to bed like that's what our wow day, like but actually the funny thing is that writing has been easier scheduling wise during this time because since my husband is not commuting he has like so graciously given me that hour every day so every day the hour that he would have spent getting from our apartment into the city to work mm -hmm. um he's with our kid and i'm writing so that's, that's what i've crazy. got yeah <laughs> so that's um, so, yeah actually more than i and i would have otherwise i think um if things were more condensed you know so yeah well yeah, and so that means that there's a third one on the way. Is that? Yes. That is not not toddler. There, <laughs> um, there is a third one. I am working on a third one. Um, so good. And like I was saying to you before we started, I feel like there is something kind of Victorian about sort of being like, okay, it's plague times, and we're trapped in our house. I mean, the plague is not Victorian. Whatever, fill yeah. in appropriate uh infectious disease cholera and you're trapped in our homes and like you have nothing to draw on but your inner resources so you're like <laughs> you know you're like writing a novel in installments that you can read to your gathered children by candlelight in the evenings you know that's what it feels like to me right now like yeah that's how i am holding my sanity together at this moment that's good well i'm just glad there's going to be another one um, do we want to take some questions? We're Sounds on good. the exact same internal rhythm. Um, thanks so much. It's really lovely to get to hear y'all talk about this. Um, so I want to do, before we open to questions, I want to just do a warm up because I know these platforms can be so sort of like stiff for people who are not feeling visibly present. So let's just do like a roll call of where are people, if you just type in the chat where you're joining us from so we can have sort of start to like warm up fingers and get oh, yeah. ready. So anybody in the chat for saying, I know we have one person from Louisiana. Yes. Nikki has said, oh yes, oh, yes, the librarian friend. Anybody else who is up for saying in the chat where they're from? Boise, Tamin Walking Skylight. Hi, Ellen. Philadelphia, <laughs> LA, awesome. Hi, Rasta. Cool. Hi, Lisa. Nice. Um, New York, okay, great. Brooklyn, great. I think we're. I think we can be. I think we can be warm. So let's take. Let's take a couple questions. Anybody have any questions they'd like to ask? I'm gonna turn my video off so I go small again, but I'm here. All right. Um, while they're so while they're typing, um, what I want to know is, are you thinking long term about her relationship status and her private life? I mean, I'm not asking for spoilers, but I'm just wondering, like. Are you able to see her personal life, a trajectory there? Yes, actually, that's sort of like the main trajectory that's been in my mind, um, and the the sort of details of like the case or whatever that she has in each one is something that I come up with afterwards. But but my idea was really, I mean, and this is my social worker thing coming out. It was like <laughs> that. Like, what's interesting about spies and about private detectives and the whole kind of noir genre is that it's about solitude and like. So what kind of a person coming from what kind of a situation chooses this kind of extreme solitude and like how does she move through that to like being able to be in relationship 
with another person with multiple hopefully with like with a community right but also like a romantic relationship so for me right. that's the trajectory of the series yeah. it's like getting her to healthy relationships <laughs> <laughs> but having her just fall short so we have to hold on we have to <laughs> for the next book no i just think you know that's just such a thing I, I i think with um detective novels i'm always less interested in like who who killed the vicar or whatever the case is <laughs> I'm much more interested in how is this person going to make it? Like, how are they going to be? A, that's what I love about Walter Mosley's novels is I feel like, you know, Easy Rollins is a, is a black man in a, a really tough world where the stakes are against him and, and, and where the runaway girl went is less interesting than like, how is he going to keep coming back when so much is stacked against him. That's what I am reading it for. And I feel that way about these books. It looks like we have a question of some kind. Yeah, we've got one question from Dai. Um, Dai wants to know, could you talk about your process of getting an agent, which maybe I'll expand if it's all right, Dai, to, to be more about like any reflections about how you sort of like toggle between the, the process of writing with a sort of larger business questions of the publishing industry. Like how much does that yeah. practical side of things um, calling on your brain as you're as you're writing um that stuff is all so hard and to those who are in the process of that right now just like you, like great job you're doing amazing it can be an incredibly uh dispiriting and frustrating process and um it really is like persistence is it's like 90 percent of it so my process of getting an agent i mean i wrote uh, my first book, Relief Map, that came out in 2016. I started writing it in like 2007. Um, and so like a few years into it, I felt like it was, you know, ready to to send out on submission. And so I did the whole thing of like, um, subscribe to one of those sites. It's like a database of agents. And I looked at the, you know, books that the agents represented. And I looked to see who was kind of a newer, younger agent. and was more likely to be taking clients. And I crafted my query letters and I recrafted them. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I just did a lot. I just did a lot of that. Um, and that went on for a couple of years. Um, and also I did have, I think here and there and there a couple of times I had like an introduction, like I knew somebody who knew somebody. Um, and I don't want to like downplay that because that stuff is real. Um, in my case, I was like, I was living in Brooklyn. And so like I knew somebody who was, you know, working for a publisher. And so, you know, she like had had drinks with somebody who was an agent who was looking for stuff. And so I, you know, she like told me to, to submit some stuff. A couple of things like that happened here and there. Um, and I, when I eventually did get an agent who um, took me on in 2011, um, it didn't work out, which also is a thing that can happen. Um, so, you know, we, we worked together. She wanted some revisions and stuff like that. I worked on the revisions, um, but I think at some point in that process, she had sort of come to the conclusion that she felt like she didn't know how to sell it or didn't really feel like she could put her time and energy behind it. Um, so she dropped me. Uh, so then I was like back to square one. Um, so then I'm gonna, this may be more detailed than you wanted, but I'm gonna tell you. 
So then, so during this whole period, I was also applying for like residencies um, and grants and stuff like that. And I finally got lucky and I got a thing that I'd applied for, which was the Center for Fiction Emerging Writer Fellowship. Um, and I, one of the things I did was a reading. At the reading, there was like a junior editor from Simon & Schuster. She emailed me and she's like, I like your work. Who is your agent? And so at that point, I had my work was on submission with an agent who had not given me a, an answer yet. Um, and it's been a couple months, so I figured the answer might be no. <laughs> but I emailed her and like always use this kind of leverage. I emailed her and I was like, this editor at Simon Schuster wants to know who my agent is. So like, yeah. So are you my agent? Right. And she was like, and because I respect her honesty and integrity, she was like, you know, I wasn't really sure how to sell this, but like, if there's already an editor who's interested, then sure, I'm your agent. And to be clear, the editor at Simon and Schuster did not actually succeed in acquiring the book. Like, she couldn't get the sign-ons that she needed from people above her um, to buy it, so they did not buy it. But by that time, my agent was stuck with me. So. Yeah. <laughs> And I should clarify, like, my agent is, like, an angel. I love her very much. She's, like, she's, like, a friend and, like, a champion and, and, and all that stuff, um, to be clear. But it's a business, right? So, like, at first she was, like, I'm not actually sure that I can have a business relationship to this work. Uh, and then she's, like, no, I guess I can. <laughs> and then it was too late to go back. Right, right. That's amazing. Yes, that's the story. Um, can I turn this to another question? Um, someone wants to know, what has it been like for you to write about um, LGBT characters during this time in history. I it's like kind of amazing that I think the same week that it came out was when the Supreme Court decision came down that um, that banned workplace discrimination uh, against LGBTQ people, which was a tremendous moment. Um, so it's been. I mean, in many ways, I think it feels like. Uh, under siege, you know, for the last three or four years. Um, so these moments of good news are really kind of rare. Um, but it has been just kind of inspiring for me to to be kind of reading um, like some works of history about like about the community and the way that that um, gay people and queer people and trans people have survived and thrived and like enjoyed themselves <laughs> under so many different um, forms of pressure, um, you know, throughout, like throughout kind of always, but in particular, um, the 20th century. Um, and I also just like, it's something that I, that I take really seriously and try very hard to be accurate about because I'm, I'm not a member of the community. So like, I really feel a lot of pressure to not make stupid mistakes and to like kind of do the research and read some books and like talk to people and make sure that I'm, that I'm not like misrepresenting, that I'm not oversimplifying, that I'm not um, misrepresenting and then I'm producing something that people can enjoy um, you know that's like forms like any kind of small contribution to to that so um, and that's another yeah. thing about it being in the 60s is that there's lots of people who you can actually talk to about it right like right. There's, there's there's people who are Vera's age who are around for you to talk to which is that it's again it's so interesting it straddles that line with historical fiction where it seems far away but then again you may have a next door neighbor you can just ask about it right totally totally um like that you know some of the places i had like a funny moment with um a bar in the in the village but like i had had um i had been speaking to um 
uh, an interviewer who had asked if, oh, have you been, you know, to this bar? Which, of course, now I'm blank on the name of it again. I think it's, uh, anyway, it's like the oldest gay bar in the village. Um, and I was like, no, I don't think, yes, Julius. So she was like, have you been there? And I was like, I don't think so. And then, uh, like, after the book came out, I was sitting in the village, like, in, in Van Leeuwen, in an ice cream shop, <laughs> across the street from Three Lives. And I, like, I'm sort of idly staring at the Three Lives window. And I was like, maybe I'll go over there and see if they have my book. Because this was, like, the same summer that my, the, the first Vera Kelly book had come out. And I was like, but they probably don't have it because it's like late in the summer. I was like, I don't know. Like, and that's like a really cool bookstore. Like, if they don't have it, then I'm going to feel bad. I'm sitting there eating my ice cream. And I realized that I'm staring at Vera's face. Like, it's in the window. They put oh. the book in the window. <laughs> and then as I'm staring at that, and I'm like, oh, I looked across the street and realized that I was looking at Julius's. And in fact, I had been there oh. with Helen, who was on the chat, by the way, Helen in Boise, Idaho, that I had been there. And it was just like this weird sort of moment of like the past is like collapsing and like fiction is just collapsing with reality. And like, it was like I had run into her on the street in the village. That was what it felt like that I'd run into my own character like out and about on the town <laughs> in the village. That's so great. That's magical. I love that bar. Um, I'm gonna turn this next question to the two of you. Um, what are you currently reading and what's the last or what's the last good book you read? I'm reading uh, Meander Spiral Explode, which is a craft book um, by Ju Julia. Uh, I'm forgetting her last name. Her first name is Julia. I want to say her last name is Allison, um, which is, uh, I haven't read a craft book in a long time. Um, and it is very good. She's like, her whole thing is, why do we think that every structure has to be an arc? You know, what other shapes are possible? Like spirals and explosions and, and a meandering line. Um, so, not, so not a novel at all, actually. Yeah. Before that, I read um, Room Temperature, which is one of Nicholson Baker's uh, like super super novellas that are like one. It's like covers like an hour in time or even less. I think it's like twenty minutes is the real time of the story. Um, yeah. Anyway, and you? Yeah. I'm having I'm having a hard time. Um, I've read so few. It takes me forever to read a book. I'm finding. I'm, I, since the shutdown. But um, what I'm doing is I'm working my way through Charles Portis's novels. I had only read True Grit. So um, I read Masters of Atlantis, which is a crazy book. And I just finished Gringos, which I loved. It's about a guy, an American, a white guy um, living down in Mexico. And he's sort of this kind of like low level shifty antiquities dealer. <laughs> gets himself into a lot of trouble. But Charles Portis's novels are, I mean, they really are the kind of book that you 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 follow you follow your spouse around. And I've I read an entire chapter out a long chapter out loud to my husband. I could not stop. So um so they're amazing, but um I'm just in this weird place where nothing holds my attention for very long. It's I'll either read something like, I think, you know, I sort of read your book in an afternoon, like I just sort of crashed on the couch and read the whole thing cover to cover, almost, maybe it was two sittings, or it takes me like a month to read a book. I, I would very much like to return to normal on so many levels, but also in terms of my reading habits. On so many levels. And right before this all happened, we checked some books out of our local library, and I had just entered, so I moved from Brooklyn to Jersey City um, last fall. And mm -hmm. I was used to the permissive standards of the Brooklyn Public Library System. In Jersey City, once your books are overdue, you cannot renew them online. And 
you are placed on something called delinquent status. So yeah, I had just entered delinquent status when the library system shut down. Oh no. <laughs> so like, I don't know if I'm ever gonna be allowed to check out a book in this Probably town not. once the it's once the is lifted. You you are dead to libraries. I'm dead to libraries. Those library books are still on my shelf. Such a such a strange time. I'm in trouble. What else? Do we have another? I'm gonna do a little bit of yammering about business and then I can we can maybe have time for one more question. So okay. folks can think about last ones. Um, first of all, y'all should all get yourself a copy of not just Vera Kelly is not a mystery, but who is Vera Kelly? Um, and both, I'm gonna put the link in the chat, um, is here. You can order through our website. You can call our store and we'll put it aside for you. You can come on into the store. We're open 10 to five every day if you're in LA and as, soon as, as close as a block away, it seems. Um, you might run into Chris Pine, just saying. Chris Pine is actually just like over here across the room. I wish I could show you. He's making gaga faces <laughs> at me. Um, and it's a real party in here, so come on by. Um, and it's so great to have the two of you. I want to also call your attention. To, so first of all, order the book. Order the books. Um, and secondly, I want to call your attention to the donate button at the bottom of the screen. I know it's a tough time for many, but and we are sort of like pumping away as best we can here at Skylight, but certainly could use the extra help if you're able. So um, I know we have librarians and writers and booksellers here, so we're all sort of in the same boat and we all know that our communities are sort of like struggling and helping each other keep afloat and that kind of mutual support has been a great gift. So if you're able, I'll just point your eyes that way. Um, do we have one more question that somebody wants to ask? It's been so nice having the two of you here. Thank you both for, for joining us. Okay, yes. Um, Mark wants to know, how do you feel that you've grown or changed as a writer after going from struggling to find an agent to being published and now almost completing the Vera Kelly trilogy? This question was a plant. <laughs> <laughs> Mark is sitting right over there. Um, <laughs> I mean, okay, I think that, um, you know, it's sort of in the way that the, the question about the agent was posed, right? Which is like, how much of how much of my brain is being eaten by the business side of it. And I think that's like the really great thing about having an agent is that you can stop thinking about getting an agent. Um, and that is like a, a blessed relief. <laughs> so I think that it's like having, being into more of a groove where you have the relationship set up a little bit, like you do have, like having an agent, having an editor, just it lets you focus more on doing the work. And of course, also the thing is, those things could go away, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, my agent might suddenly decide to like open up a small charcuterie shop in um, France. My, my agent speaks French, that's why I imagine that that would be what she would do. But, <laughs> um, or, you know, like editor, like things happen, right? Um, so, but when things are going well, I think the way that that can be substantive is that it helps you shut down some of the anxious ego chatter and just do your work and not think about it so much. Um, but of course, this question did come from my husband, so he's aware perhaps that the anxious ego chatter has not been completely eliminated. <laughs> so I just want to tell you, um, just talking about kind of the businessy side of publishing, that one of the sweetest stories I've ever heard about an author-editor relationship is your editor. And, um, and I think about it, I weirdly think about this all the time, but she told me one time that um, 
that she she loves your work so much that she feels like she ought, she, she she should just call you once a month or so and say please don't stop writing please keep going <laughs> we need another book from you and i i have to say never in my life has anyone called me and begged me to please not stop writing so i <laughs> i feel like you know that's just um tin house is a lovely publisher but um they really are just to have people who are in your corner who are going, please keep doing this. I mean, especially you're working full time, you're a social worker. It's a demanding, draining job. I've worked for nonprofits doing social worky kinds of things. So I know that you don't have a lot left to give at the end of the day. So to have people around you who are saying, yes, we need more of this, please keep going. It's just, that's so nice. It, they are also, and I sort of want to make a businessy note about that too, is that I, you know, I've published with a small press and small it's and it's different that way um and i when i was writing the second book i was working full time i've now i'm not working full time i'm um i've sort of struck off on my own uh to make things a little bit easier but yeah i mean there is a way that like if your um editor and agent don't seem like they're you know that they think this is a good idea then it's really hard to persist in something that's sort of um you're kind of scraping the bottom of the bucket for your energy for it. And, but anyway, yeah. small presses though, I think there, there can be a feeling that if you don't find a home at one of the big five, then it doesn't count or nobody's ever going to read it. The thing about a small press is like, if they want to work with you, like everybody in the office knows your name, you know what I mean? They're not handling a bazillion titles a year. And like they pick stuff that they really believe in and that they're going to put everything they have behind it. So like, it's like a hundred, I owe everything to Tin House. They, it's so easy, I think, to get kind of lost in this cascade of titles from one of the big um, right. houses. And yeah. this, the small presses are like a huge, it can be like a really wonderful experience, um, even though yeah. you might get less cash up front. <laughs> but you know, every book is one that they're passionate about because they don't yeah. have the time or energy to just shovel books onto a list because they need to publish however many books a week. So they have to love every single one of them. And I know they love yours. And Maisie Cochran is an incredible person. Yeah, she's great. Editor and friend. Yeah. Um, I made myself big not because I wanted to intrude and stop with the another conversation, but because I want to thank you both so much for and visually, like you can see the gratitude in my face for joining us and taking the time. Um, if you click that link to our Skylight site, you can get both Amy Stewart's books and Rosalie's books, um, I encourage you to check them out. Both amazing writers, we're so grateful that you um, joined us and I um, hope you weather the continued on, on, ongoing uncertainty well. Um, and thank you to all who joined us. It's really, really lovely to have you here. We can feel your presence, even if we're all not in the same room. So thank you to all. Thanks everybody. Yeah. Take care, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>